News Network. Part of the climate agenda, along racial lines no less, is the claim that we're running out of fresh water. You do know it literally falls from the sky, right? Or is that too much truth for the baiters? Well, you're in the home of the truth. This is TNN, the Truth News Network, and your host is Dan Newman. I believe the climate activists, they have forgotten that we've been down this road with them each of the last decades. How many decades? Probably five, six, maybe even seven decades. And they just changed the name all the time. It was another ice age. And then it was global warming. And then they said, look, we're beginning to look really, really bad to Americans. They can't trust us. So we've got to change what we say about the climate. Let's just come up with one name. And it doesn't matter if it's about ice or if it's about heat, if it's about flooding. We can call it all one thing. Hey, let's call it a climate crisis. And so John Kerry's life and job were put in place. <laughs> Good morning, everybody. Welcome to a new week. Welcome to Monday at TNN Live. We're excited today. We've got many, many, many things we need to cover. Some good, some bad, all truthful, and we're going to wade right into it. We're going to get started with kind of um, some afterflow over the house drilling of FBI Director Christopher Ray last week. You know, there was a lot of stuff that happened in those hearings, and a lot of things were said, a lot of answers to some questions, and a lot of questions. We're going to weigh into that. Big news about Hunter Biden. Big news about Joe Biden. Big news about former President Donald Trump. There's a lot of news this Monday morning, and we're going to get you right into the middle of it very quickly. But we're, as we always do when we start these shows, we're going to start it with um, maybe some toe tapping, maybe some hand clapping, but some good Motown music. Michael McDonald Motown.
Motown song. That's from one of two albums Michael McDonald put together for Motown greats. And both of those albums were produced by a really good friend of mine, Tommy Sims. He uh, produced those albums, How I Met Him, as I was co-producer of an album for a group called Forever Jones about uh, 12, maybe 13 years ago. And uh, their album was nominated for three Grammy Awards and a couple of stellar awards. The middle daughter in that group, Forever Jones, Doe Jones, you might want to check her out. She goes by, in music, the name Doe, D-O-E, Doe Jones. Saturday night, she won three stellar awards. Contemporary Christian Artist of the Year, Contemporary Gospel Artist of the Year, and Song of the Year. Think about that. Stellar Award winners from right here in Shreveport, Louisiana, from Evangel Christian Academy. Talk about have a praise and worship team on our stage. At one time, we had Des Duran was part of the worship team, Dominic Jones, part of the worship team, and Willie. Willie was, I uh, can't even think of that. What's the, not American Idol, but the other one, the other big show. You got The Voice, that was Des. You got um, American Idol. I can't think of the other one, but you've got Grammy Award winner, Grammy Award nominees, and you have three of them leading praise and worship on the stage at one time. We had some great music, and we still do at Treeport Community Church. We'll get into that some other days. But let's get right to these climatologists. Today in our society, you know what runs the world. It's not... It's not solar. It's not wind. It's oil and gas. And there's no way to think that overnight we can just eliminate all that oil and gas and rely only on 10% of low-carbon energy. Nobody wants to talk about this. This is reality, what we're talking about right now today. It just sounds good. It sounds like you care if you do away with all that fossil fuel and you only go to renewable energy, right? It will take decades to build a new energy system. If we don't invest enough, the oil price will not be at $75 a barrel, folks. It'll be at $150 or even $200 a barrel. And all consumers, you and me, will be super unhappy and our life's going to be a nightmare if we really go down that road. That quote about the $150-$200 a barrel oil, that was made by Total Energy CEO, a guy named Patrick Poyan, during a recent interview with CNBC. Mr. Poyan is certainly not alone in that assessment. Everybody wants to take a number on the left. I'm in. I'm in. I want to say it. I want to say it. Though he is closer to the situation than most of the rest of us. The fact is the world is not engaged in any sort of a real energy transition at all. They tell us that we are, but we're not. We're in a massive diversification and expansion of all types of energy resources. 
That includes wind and solar, renewable energy sources that are in the midst of a big expansion drive by trillions of tax dollars and global government subsidies. But nuclear and coal and wood and biofuels and, yes, oil and natural gas. A new analysis released early early last week by Energy Outlook Advisors, EOA, which is a Texas-based advisory group that's headed up by Ennis Ahijah, demonstrates clearly why the popular energy transition narrative about getting to carbon neutrality by 2050 is little more than a fantasy. All we have to do is start with China. Start with China and its net zero by 2060 pledge. It's a prime example. Have you looked at any of that? Have you heard about China net zero by 2060? The largest investor in renewable energy in the world is China. Ahija noted that. To achieve carbon neutrality at the pace of investment, China needs 211 years. But here's the catch. This number, net zero by 2060, assumes that all current renewable projects are going to remain in place forever and that they won't require any new investments when they expire after 25 to 30 years. What this shows is that achieving carbon neutrality by 2060 or even later is little more than a pipe dream. Europe whose countries have spent trillions of euros on decarbonization efforts in this century. That's another great example, Europe. The EOA report points out that despite those gargantuan investments, fossil fuels, that's coal, oil, and natural gas, provided 71% of Europe's primary energy consumption during 2022, 71%. In China, The figure for 2022 was 82%. In India, the world's second most populous nation, theirs was 89%. Think about those numbers. (laughs) We can never just flip a switch and go to all renewable energy. It won't happen. It will not happen in the timetables that we're even talking about today, if it would ever happen. In the electricity generation sector, the dominance of fossil fuels is just slightly lower. Europe did manage to generate 41% of its electricity from renewables during 2022, but fossil fuel generation was at just under 40%, nuclear generating 20% of the continent's power needs. In China and India, Coal is still king, generating 61% and 74% of the power supply in those two agent giants. And China's opening two new coal plants a week in China. Yeah, like they're committed to renewables. (laughs) I don't think so. Globally, globally, fossil fuels generated 61% electricity last year the same percentage as here in the U.S. With power demand projected to rise dramatically along with the recharging needs of an expanding fleet of electric vehicles in the coming years, this number, 
61%. This number's breakdown seems unlikely to shift appreciably for decades to come. Forget about 2050. It ain't going to happen. These and other points of hard data cited in the report led Ahija to this conclusion. Quote, most countries, if not at all, will not achieve their targets of carbon neutrality or net zero by 2050 or 2060. The data above shows that fossil fuels are entrenched, hard to reduce, let alone get rid of. The hard reality, that's a word the left can't stand, reality. The hard reality is that we have spent more than $4 trillion on solar and wind energy since 2010, and yet they are showing little progress on the energy landscape. Where all the natural gas are concerned, the report adds, and again I quote, data indicates that future demand for oil and gas is underestimated, while demand destruction is hyped. That conclusion is supported by repeated upwards revisions of global demand estimates this year by both OPEC and the IEA, International Energy Agency. These are all themes that have been written about since early 2022 and even before, and we've seen a growing consensus forming around them throughout the course of this year, 2023. This EOA report will no doubt help firm up that consensus by documenting the wealth of hard data supporting it. But who on the left believes any of the real numbers? Nobody does. John Kerry doesn't have a clue. You know what he looks at all of this, his own personal climate fraud. You know what it's about? Making himself important. He is one of the, if not the most, inferior feeling people I've ever seen on the national political level. He's got to do stuff to make himself look big and important and right all the time. How many trillions of dollars have we spent and are we going to spend just to prop up his personality? Facts matter. (laughs) Facts matter. And it doesn't matter even if one doesn't like them, doesn't believe in them. That doesn't matter. Facts matter. And you can't manipulate facts. That's something that everybody needs to realize. And the sooner we accept it, And the sooner we get on down the road, we're going to be a whole lot better. Let me just give you, I'm going to turn on a little light regarding some of the furor that we are seeing happen every day across the nation about EVs. Oh my gosh, it's all in the theme of we've got to get a hold of our environment. We're putting too much carbon gas in the atmosphere and we're all going to die if we don't stop it. John Kerry himself publicly several years ago was asked a question before Congress when he was talking about getting carbon neutral by 2050. We got to do it. We got to do it. Mr. Kerry, can we accomplish that? Is it feasible that we 
as a United States, if we get our carbon emissions to 2050, that we can trust, that we can trust that company, uh, countries like China and India, the two biggest polluters on earth, no matter what they do, we're still going to be able to drop Earth's temperature that we know, according to what you experts tell us, is going to go up one-tenth or three-tenths of a degree. Can we expect that that will happen? And he quickly said, no way. So how the heck are we going to justify spending trillions of dollars and forcing these EV monsters down the throats of Americans when there's no way they'll ever do what we're told they're going to do? Let me just give an example. Have you seen any Tesla ads talking about their vehicles? Oh, yeah, they're on all the time. I used Teslas when I was in Europe a couple of years ago. Um, We didn't use taxis over there. Taxis were horrendously expensive. We Ubered everywhere. And I'd set up an Uber Black account, and every one of those cars were either a big Mercedes or the big Tesla. First time I ever rode in a Tesla. Only place I've ever ridden in a Tesla. They're really nice. Lots of room, very powerful, kind of quiet compared to gasoline engines. And I liked them, but I didn't know anything about them. Hadn't read about them, hadn't been in a dealership, hadn't even sat in a car other than the Ubers in Zurich, Switzerland. But in the last couple of months, I found out some things. I live in a, in a, a nice subdivision in Shreveport, Louisiana. It's relatively new. It's probably only, I guess, the oldest homes in here are six years old. And they built it out in the middle of nowhere. So it's infrastructure, everything, water, electricity, uh, Wi-Fi, everything was brand new and was put to place and out here to take care of the needs of the houses that were built then and each phase as it has grown. I just wondered when we started talking about these EVs and how critical they were, what would it take if every car, every house in our subdivision had at least one electric vehicle? You got to have a charging station, right? So would it be possible to do it? Because I know that it's going to take a lot of more power than most people have in their subdivisions in their homes. And I talked to somebody that's an electrician, really good, and knows this part of the state and this city. He actually lives next door to me in this, in this subdivision. And he laughed and he said, the power grid that is underground running through to all these houses, it would have to be ripped up and replaced if each home in here had just one electric vehicle and they charged it overnight. So you can imagine what that would be like across the nation. That's just one thing. Tesla doesn't talk about that. People that own Teslas don't talk about that. Joe Biden doesn't talk about that. Oh, we've got to get to electric vehicles. Electric vehicles, that's going to save the, cl- the planet. How long do batteries last? The rechargeable kind. Well, you do understand when you get rechargeable batteries and you recharge them every day, every few days, it doesn't matter, but you recharge them. After a period of time, those batteries, they wear out. They got to be replaced. Flashlight, 
electric razor, and cars. How much does it cost to replace batteries in a Tesla? Well, it depends on which Tesla. And if you have to replace the whole slow sloth of batteries because they are side-by-side underneath uh, the passenger cabinet or whatever you want to call it in your car. They're underneath and they're everywhere. If you have to replace them all on the big Tesla, it's anywhere from thirty to forty-five thousand dollars every three years. Heard about that? <laughs> well, I'll just trade it in. Well, when you go to trade it in, first question they're going to ask you at the Tesla dealer: Hey, when did you buy this car? Oh, I've I've had it. Yada yada yada. Oh, you've had it three years. Have you replaced the batteries? Nope. Okay, they'll cut thirty-five, forty thousand dollars off of what they're going to give you for the car because for them to put it out on the lot. They're going to have to change the batteries because new customers going to say, what about the batteries in the car? They got to be honest about it. These kind of things just continue to pop up and nobody's giving us any answers. And then there's another thing about these cars, electric vehicle tires, just the tires produce up to 20% more pollution than their gas-powered equivalents. And that means that EVs, electric vehicles, could be coming at a higher environmental price than most owners are even aware of. For decades, the impact of tailpipe emissions from gas-powered cars has been the primary draw of battery-powered vehicles. we got to get rid of that greenhouse gas, cars, SUVs. But experts are warning that tires, which are often overlooked as a source of pollution, are releasing chemicals and microplastics into the environment. While switching to an EV no doubt helps lower how much carbon you generate, it actually exacerbates the problem of tire emissions. EVs typically weigh much more and accelerate faster than their gas-burning counterparts. So tiny particles are shed into the air as the tire wears down. Now, this is not just something somebody's pulled out of the air. We've got road test. According to road test by research company Emissions Analytics, under normal driving conditions, a gas car sheds about 73 milligrams per kilometer from four new tires. A comparable electric vehicle, however, sheds an additional 15 milligrams per kilometer. That's 20% more. It's a combination of the weight and the torque, which is essentially how aggressively the car can accelerate. The thing about electric motors is that they have the ability to accelerate very, very fast. If you put together that and how heavy that vehicle is, and that is what creates an additional wear on the four tires. The typical EV weighs about a thousand pounds more than the gas models. In a study conducted by Emissions Analytics in March, comparing the Tesla Model Y, the most popular EV in the U.S., 
and the similarly sized hybrid Kia Nero, the firm found the Tesla produced 26% more tire emissions. The hybrid Kia Nero delivers about 30% CO2 reduction, while the Tesla is probably somewhere close to 50%. The Tesla is better from a CO2 point of view, but not that much. Then you're weighing up some extra CO2 reduction, but worse tire emissions. So in a 2017 study, the average American produces roughly 10 pounds of tire emissions every year. The global average per person is under 2 pounds of tire emissions a year. Nobody's talked about this stuff. The International Union for Conservation of Nature says tires are the second leading source of microplastic pollution in oceans right behind textiles. People are spending a ton of money on these big monsters when really we should be going towards small, light economic vehicles. This comes as if the U.S. faces an electric car revolution led by a surge in Tesla sales. Last week, the company co-founded by billionaire and who am I talking about, Elon Musk and Tesla, announced a record surge in sales in the second quarter of the year, delivering 446,140 cars worldwide in the three months leading up to June, outdoing its own prediction of 445,000. Business here in the U.S. has been bolstered by federal tax credits for EVs, although experts have warned it could take up to a decade to pay off the premium that customers pay for one of those electric vehicles. Although green motors tend to be cheaper to run, the average electric car costs just shy of $20,000 more to purchase up front than a gas-powered car. So despite all this falderall and interest in EVs, leading automakers just this week said Joe Biden's electric car push is doomed to fail because it underestimates key challenges, including the cost to consumers. And by the way, don't forget the White House has set out a target requiring that two-thirds of new vehicle sales be electric by 2032. You hadn't heard any of that, have you? I wonder why that is. I'm going to give you an example, another example of why all of this craziness has been perpetrated by the mainstream media. I, in fact, I'm not even going to tell you about it. I'm going to let Joe Rogan tell you about it. Number one podcast in the world, Joe Rogan. Right after this, you're going to hear Big Joe on TNN Live, and this is a first, but he's going to talk about the insanity of cable network news outlets like CNN and MSNBC. And Joe's nothing like a conservative at all. He's just a regular old guy that he thinks things through and he comes up with real answers. Not answers that are every time politically correct. 
Joe's up next. Hey, what's the biggest number you can think of? A trillion, billion, zillion. That's pretty big. How about you? Ten. Okay. How about you? Infinity. Can you top that? Infinity and one. Actually, we are looking for infinity plus infinity. Sorry. What about infinity times infinity? <laughs> it's not complicated. Bigger is better. And AT&T has the nation's largest 4G network. You need brake pads? We have brake pads. Like dependable brake pads, quieter brake pads, longer life brake pads, and performance brake pads. At AutoZone, we have all the brake pads you need, so you can get the job done right. Get in the zone, AutoZone! So you guys grew up together? Yeah, since third grade. What are you looking at? I'm not looking at it. We're not good enough for you. You look for something else? No, I, just, I don't know. What are you, big supermodels? Oh, oh, yeah. This is us. Supermodels. What do you model, gloves? What are you doing? A girl's totally into me. Brad, eat a Snickers. Why? Because you get a little angry when you're hungry. Better? Better. So, ladies. So, losers. Stacy, relax. Oh, I'm sorry. You're not you when you're hungry. Snickers satisfies. Starbucks Via Instant is made with the same 100% Arabica beans served at Starbucks. So it's the only instant with the rich, delicious taste of the Starbucks coffees you love and takes only seconds to make. Starbucks Via Instant, the only instant coffee of its kind. Available in black flavored lattes and iced coffee. Fake news, spin, anger, violence. How do you sort through the chaos? You tune in to TNN, the Truth News Network. Truthnewsnet.org. I don't know about you, but I'm one American that wishes we were back in a time where we could just listen to our news reporters give us news, and we could just, without even thinking about it, Ah, we might say, oh, that's terrible, that happened, or man, I'm glad to hear about that. But we could just leave it right there. Now we spend hours trying to figure out if what we're hearing is true or not. When all they're supposed to do is tell us the facts about something when it happens. And then trust us. They just don't trust us, do they? Well, we all went through our COVID-19 insanity together. All the mysteries, all the unanswered questions. Well, wait a minute. No, let me rephrase that. We got a, every question got answers, but we got answers from the so-called experts, even the big guys up at the top of healthcare. The answers they gave us on which millions of Americans and people around the world relied and hundreds of thousands of people died because of what we heard. It was a horrible time. Fear just flooded the earth. I've never seen people in mass that afraid. And we were afraid because what the experts were telling us, it just did not seem to jibe with the facts. So Joe Rogan, as I told you going into the break, number one podcast in the world. I think he has 10 million, somewhere around that number. It's in the millions of people that watch him on YouTube. Joe Rogan. Now, he's got a lot of curb appeal, you know, with his uh, ring-fighting WWE. I believe that's the one that he was with for so many years. And he's just a regular old guy. 
But he took on several mainstream media outlets recently on a show. I think it was Thursday or Friday of last week. And I'm just going to let him tell you. He'll tell you real quickly. Here's Joe Rogan. Disturbs the shit out of me is that after I got better, CNN, MSNBC, all these mainstream news things are mocking me for taking horse medication. They're saying he took horse medication. He took horse dewormer. Like literally taking a drug that's on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines. Literally taking a drug that's been prescribed billions of times. Taking a drug from that was invented by the guy who won the Nobel Prize for inventing that drug. I got better quick. Nobody cared that I got better quick. All they cared was I didn't get vaccinated. What's the best way to shame him? Let's point to this one thing that he took and mock this person for taking this foolish medication. They even changed the color of my face on CNN. They thought they were CNN, and CNN was huge. CNN is the news. CNN is a gigantic corporation. They have a big building, a whole deal, giant sign. They didn't understand that this podcast is 10 times larger than them. Think about that. Joe Rogan's podcast is 10 times larger than CNN or MSNBC. Now, those are two supposed popular, well-known, well-thought-of cable news networks. I'm going to tell you something. Those of you who may be new to this show, there are some days when we have more listeners than does CNN on that same day, and sometimes MSNBC too. Why is that? They don't think so, but we, we do. Americans are not stupid. Americans, when they are forced to make choices and decisions about very important things based upon what their government and the government's so-called experts tell us, and we're told, you've got to do this or you can't integrate with your fellow Americans, you can't go out, you can't assimilate at restaurants or movie theaters, your kids can't go to school, you can't go to church, oh, But in California, when they locked down businesses, you couldn't go to church, you couldn't go to the bank, you couldn't go to a restaurant, but you could still go to a strip club. Those things happened and many, many more that were absolutely stupid. Now, what is Joe Rogan talking about? The horse medicine that he took. Ivermectin. Ivermectin. Yeah, it was originally prescribed for horses. But what it works on when a human has it, not using the same dosage, but it not only works, it works really, really well. I'm going to tell you a secret right now. In one of our bathrooms you'll find some ivermectin. In all of our bathrooms, you'll find hydroxychloroquine. They both work. They've both been approved by the FDA for decades. And they work. And they worked for decades. But they didn't fit the narrative that the experts put together and spun with our political leaders. Call it an experiment 
that went wrong. I don't think it went wrong. I think it, in, it got the intended results that they were after. I think they counted the cost. They knew there would be a lot of people that would die. But it was important for those on the left that we've told you for four years now on this show, as long as it's been here, the lust from the left serves one purpose and one purpose only. It's not to amass money. It's to amass power. Power, because if they can seize power from the people, they don't need to go after money or anything else. They've got with the power anything and everything they want. This was a test to see how much of our freedoms we were willing to give up to the government because they told us our doing so was necessary or people, including us, were going to die. Joe Rogan hit the nail on the head. I've never said that the same way he just said it. I didn't take ivermectin at first. I did take hydroxychloroquine, as did Marianne, as did some of our closest friends. Many of those friends tried the old traditional medications that the doctors were out there touting in the early going of COVID-19, and it didn't work. They switched over to hydroxychloroquine with zinc and vitamin D and vitamin E, and it worked, and not only worked, it worked quickly. I did get COVID. Marianne got it twice. I got it one time. It lasted less than 24 hours. Hydroxychloroquine, zinc, and vitamins. Oh, yeah, my doctor gave me that medicine. A doctor that refused to go down that you gotta comply road that millions of doctors around the world went down and millions and millions of people in the world paid the price for that. Don't always believe what people tell you. If it seems a little fishy, even coming from somebody you trust, before you take actions on it, research it. Get some confirmation. We're talking about when, you, when you're talking about medicine and vaccines and uh, pandemic, you're talking about life changing choices that we're being forced to make. And yeah, I got some pushback. There were a lot of people in my family that thought I was crazy for doing it the way that we did it. They don't think so now. Just because they think something's right doesn't make it right. And the flip side of that is just because I think something was wrong, just because I thought it was wrong, that doesn't mean automatically it was wrong. They could have been right. I could have been wrong. But what I did was took a little time to analyze the facts out there. And I began to, because what I do here requires a massive amount of investigation and research. And I didn't feel comfortable with the bits of medical uh, input that we were getting on a national level in the early days of COVID. And so I started reading and watching and listening to the medical professionals in Europe and Asia. And they were singing a different song, at least at first. 
And then at one point, it was almost like somebody hollered at him and said, you got to do it like the U.S. is doing it. And they flipped the switch, and most of them came over and started doing it our way. And all of those people, in large part, they are still today and probably will be for years to come paying the price for going down that road. Just be careful. You you only have one body. We need to take care of it. And before you put something in it, it's just like these kids that are dying in droves in the United States. Most of them innocently taking a medication that they think is one thing. They get it from a trusted source and it's laced with fentanyl. They innocently took it and bam, they die. Our administration has done nothing to stop it. The source is China. The fentanyl is produced over there in mass amounts, shipped to Mexico. They're putting it in the products that they're coming with across the southern border and spreading it everywhere. Truth saves a lot of people a lot of things, a lot of money, a lot of angst, and a lot of death. We need to embrace that and find more and more of it and put away this other crap that people are throwing it out there. Like he said, CNN, MSNBC, they were laughing at him on air because he took ivermectin. He got sick, only stayed sick a day or so, and he was fine. Many of them, they've had multiple episodes with COVID-19, and they went down the traditional road, and many of them went in a bad place at one time. Did you see any of FBI Director Chris Ray's appearance before the House Republicans last week? He was just blasted. Every day last week, revelations from House Oversight and Accountability Chairman Jim Comer, Republican from Kentucky, and Senator Charles Grassley from Iowa, also Republican in the Senate, virtually cementing Hunter's role as a major influence peddler to foreign countries, including China. Republicans want answers from the FBI as evidence on Hunter seeming to implicate the president. Raised interrogators, they went after him on a smorgasbord of allegations. I mean, he was he was on self-defense from the very beginning of that. And it was principally about the FBI on his watch violating its very own policies and procedures, like the Durham report and egregious constitutional violations of our rights. Ray was extremely evasive, and his doing so enraged Republicans that were seeking answers to, among other concerns. Let's just go down a short list. Whether the FBI used undercover agents or directed sources to, maybe enthusiastically, participate in the January 6th riot, and what is the Bureau's alleged relationship with that ubiquitous, mysterious guy, Ray Epps. In another curiously timed development, Epps' attorney indicated the government now intends to charge Epps relative to the January 6th event. What is the status of the suspected pipe bomber who left devices at both the RNC and the DNC that day? Have you heard anything about that environment? 
Nobody talks about it. A whistleblower reported that investigators identified a car associated with the suspect but didn't pursue the lead. And don't even get me started on the FBI and DOJ's handling of, or not handling, that infamous FD Form 1023 arrays absurd claim that the Bureau did not engage in censorship with social media but simply offered suggestions, which was utterly belied by Judge Terry Doty's cogent opinion in that Missouri versus Biden case that, by the way, Doty's finding of that was appealed, as we knew it would, and a Fifth Circuit Court judge, they took away Doty's ruling and said, we're going to let this thing go until it is totally adjudicated in court. But to me, the most startling admission by Christopher Ray last week were his responses to the FBI's collection of transaction records from those U.S. banks. While he was there, Kentucky Republican Thomas Massey advised Ray, quote, George Hill, former FBI supervisory intelligence analyst in the Boston field office, told us that the Bank of America, with no legal process, gave to the FBI gun purchase records with no geographical boundaries for anybody that was a Bank of America customer. Is that true? The director responded, a number of business community partners all the time, including financial institutions, share information with us about possible criminal activity. And my understanding is that that's fully lawful, Ray responded. He's the FBI director. He knows he didn't have the right to do that. Constitutionally, Americans have the right to expect their private information to remain private. If any government agency thinks otherwise, they're supposed to go get a warrant. Yes, there is an established process for private financial institutions to provide the government, such as regulators and law enforcement, customer records under narrowly crafted provisions, one being indications of criminal activity. The operative term here is criminal activity. So pursuant to the Department of Treasury's Bank Secrecy Act, a financial institution and bank are required to make formal referrals to the financial crimes, the financial crimes enforcement network. When, after conducting their own due diligence, the bank believes that a crime like fraud or money laundering may have occurred at their institution. These routine referrals are called SARS, S-A-R-S, or Suspicious Activity Reports. You may have heard about those earlier this year in connection to the Biden family syndicate's financial escapades receiving millions of dollars from foreign entities, triggering the production of about, oh, a paltry 150 of those S-A-R-S. According to the FBI, This website, FinCEN website, which maintains and oversees Bank Secrecy Act reporting, has also implemented strict controls governing access to this information to ensure it's not misused and remains confidential. But the circumstances this time with B of A's alleged behavior 
totally different this time and very troubling. Whistleblower George Hill told congressional investigators the FBI's Washington field office leaned on other field offices to predicate investigations on U.S. citizens based on nothing more than the transactions records Bank of America provided to the FBI. In other words, they had nothing that could be considered probable cause. Just some bank transactions. Further, Bank of America highlighted customer transactions of apparently lawful firearm purchases by Americans. There are all kinds of wrong with this. Illegal stuff. First, Bank of America's alleged conduct, the voluntary provision of confidential customer info, would seem to be a violation of their obligation to their customers' entitlement to privacy. And that comes from the 1978 Right to Financial Privacy Act. There's nothing to indicate that B of A's customers would have consented or been notified that their transaction records were given to the FBI. Second, for the FBI to accept this information without the notification or the consent of the customer would be tantamount to an unauthorized collection or illegal search. If the whistleblower's testimony is accurate, and so far we have no reason to think it isn't accurate, B of A and the FBI simply did an end run around the Banking Secrecy Act's reporting requirements and violated the Fourth Amendment protections. Finally, the free exercise of the Second Amendment to purchase and own a firearm was no justification to broadly collect or even freely accept private records as evidence of such, let alone predicate an FBI investigation devoid of any connection to criminal activity. In fact, this whistleblower, George Hill, said the Washington FBI demanded that the Boston FBI open cases based on the B of A information. From the squad supervisor to the special agent in charge, the Boston office rightly refused. So Director Ray, let me just say this. He's in a really bad position right now. He leads an organization that has lost most Americans' trust and credibility. He claims to have instituted corrective measures internally to right the wrongs that occurred before his tenure. But problems with the Bureau's stewardship continue to surface during Ray's tenure, and ultimately, he is accountable for them. And I'm going to end this by just asking you a question. Do you have any idea how much money a normal FBI, somebody up at the top, what they make? It's kind of along the lines the same as uh, a member of Congress. $170,000, $200,000 with benefits added in on top of that. You know how much money Christopher Ray made last year? And I don't have the multiple sources of the dollars, but Ray made a little bit more than that. How much more than that? I mean, $200,000, that's a lot of money, Dan. Most Americans would just, they'd be tickled with that, singing with glee. Oh, I got almost a quarter of a million this year. I can pay my bills and put a little money back and maybe pay off my college tuition with that. Ray got a little more than that. His income last year, it wasn't 
500,000, 700,000, wasn't a million, five million. Uncertain about what you see and hear in mainstream media? Worried about getting the truth? No worries anymore. Get the truth, only the truth, at TNN, the Truth News Network, at truthnewsnet.org. In the steel industry, we dedicate our careers to supporting this country, making products to build infrastructure and skylines, creating jobs, supporting families. And when domestic materials are used, the money stays in our communities. That's what really matters. These people, these places, that's worth supporting. You do your thing, and you do it well. Now, it's time to do it bigger. It's time for Shopify. Shopify makes it easy to set up your online store, expand into new sales channels, and bring your brand into the real world. Get everything you need to launch your business today with Shopify. I love going all natural. It just makes me feel better. Nothing between me and my 100% all natural, juicy, grass fed beef. Introducing the all-natural burger, the first ever in fast food, with no antibiotics, no added hormones, and no steroids, only at Carl's Jr. Now, last week, I didn't watch a whole lot of the testimony of Christopher Ray before Congress. I did get in on probably, uh, I'm going to say the first hour, maybe the first couple of hours. And thankfully, Mike Johnson, my congressman from the 4th Congressional District in Northwest Louisiana, he was one of those guys that, uh, and Mike's a great speaker. Um, very few people know much about his past. He was in. He is an attorney. He's been a long-time attorney in private practice um, and top-level private practice. But even before that, he was in radio. So he's a good speaker. He knows how to lay it out there and do a good job of it. I wanted you to hear Mike Johnson, I mean, drilling Christopher Ray in this committee hearing last week. Here's Mike Johnson, an FBI director for Chris Ray. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Director Ray, this is no time to mince words. The American people have lost faith in the FBI. All of our constituents are demanding that we get this situation under control, and we have to do that. That's our responsibility. This is not a political party issue, sir. This is about whether the very system of justice in our country can be trusted anymore. Without that, no republic can survive. See, the American people that we represent are losing count of the scandals that are mounting. The FBI has been involved. They've seen evidence that it's being used as a political tool of the Biden administration. They've seen counterterrorism resources being used against school parents, the homes of conservative political opponents being raided. They've seen conservative states being targeted over their election integrity laws and conservative Catholics and pro-life citizens characterized as violent extremists. Just last month, as you know, special former uh, 
former special counsel John Durham sat right in that seat and testified that the Justice Department and the FBI should never have launched the bogus Trump-Russia investigation. And his lengthy report reluctantly concluded that the FBI, quote, failed to uphold its mission of strict fidelity to the law. Just last week, NBC had a poll. Only 37% of registered voters now view the FBI positively. 35% have a negative view. In 2018, by comparison, 52% of the country had a positive view of the FBI. There's a serious decline in the people's faith, and it's on your watch, sir. And then, July 4th, we had this explosive, explosive 155-page opinion from a federal court in my home state of Louisiana. It explains in detail that the FBI has been directly involved in what the, con the court says is, quote, arguably the most massive attack against free speech in United States history. The court ordered the White House, DOJ, and FBI, among others, to immediately cease colluding with and coercing social media companies to suppress American speech, of course, conservative speech in particular. Director Ray, I find it stunning. You made no mention of this court opinion, either in your opening statement today or in this lengthy 14-page report that you prepared on July 12th, which is eight days after the court ruling. Have you read the ruling, sir? I am familiar with the ruling, and I've uh, reviewed it with our Office of General Counsel. Are you deeply disturbed by what they've told you about the ruling, if you haven't read it yourself? Uh, obviously, we're going to comply with the court's order, the court's preliminary injunction. We sent out guidance to the field and the headquarters uh, about how to do that. Uh, needless to say, the, the injunction itself is a subject of ongoing litigation, uh, and so I'll, I'll decline to comment further on Well, let me tell you what the court concluded, because it, it should be the first thing you think about every morning and the last thing you think about at night. They said that, quote, the court found, apparently the FBI engaged in a massive effort to suppress disfavored conservative speech and blatantly ignored the First Amendment's right to free speech. The evidence shows the FBI threatened adverse consequences to social media companies that they did not comply with its censorship request. The court found that, quote, this seemingly unrelenting pressure by the FBI and the other defendants had the intended result of suppressing millions of protected free speech postings by American citizens. As a result, the court states, for example, millions of citizens did not hear about the Hunter Biden laptop story prior to the November 3rd, 2020 election. Page four of the court ruling lists some of the important subjects that the Biden administration and the FBI forced the social media uh, platforms to suppress. The evidence shows you, your agency, the people that directly report to you, suppressed conservative-leaning free speech about topics like the laptop, the lab leak theory of COVID-19's origin, the effectiveness of masks and COVID-19 lockdowns and vaccines, speech about election integrity in the 2020 presidential election, security of voting by mail, even parody about the president himself, negative posts about the economy. The FBI made the social media platforms pull that information off the internet if it came from conservative sources. They, they did this under the guise that it was disinformation. Can you, can you define what disinformation is? What I can tell you is that our focus is not on disinformation, broadly speaking. Well, wait a minute. Yes, it is. Wait a minute. You're, can I you're, answer the question? You can in a minute. Your star witness said in the litigation, Elvis Chan, who's in charge of this, said they do it on the basis of dif disinformation. We need, a, we need a definition of what that is. Our focus is on malign foreign disinformation, that is foreign hostile actors who engage in covert efforts to <laughs> Mr. abuse Ray, our Mr. social media platforms, which is something that is not seriously in dispute. I have to stop phenomenon. you for time. That's not accurate. You need to read this court opinion because you're in charge of enforcing it. The court has found that, and Elvis Chan testified under oath in charge of this for you. He said 50%, he had a 50% success rate in having alleged election disinformation taken down or censored. 
That, that wasn't just foreign adversaries, sir. That was American citizens. How do you answer for that? Well, first off, I'm not sure that's a correct characterization. Comes of right out of the opinion. You should read it. What I, of, of his testimony. But what I would say is the FBI is not in the business of moderating content or causing any social media company to suppress or censor. That is not what the court has found. What I would also say is among the things that you listed off, I find ironic the reference to the lab leak theory. The idea that the FBI would somehow be involved in suppressing references to the lab leak theory is somewhat absurd when you consider the fact that the FBI was the only, the only agency in the entire intelligence community to reach the assessment that it was more likely than not that that was the explanation but your for the agents, pandemic. But your agents pulled it off the internet, sir. That's what the evidence in the court has found. So here's Christopher Ray, FBI director. He's where the buck stops. You know, if you're uh, in a big company, let's say, and he's managing actually a big company, tens of thousands of employees in the FBI nationwide. He's the boss. Everything in companies, everything in this entity should come from the top. Christopher Ray should put out all of the stuff that filters down. Now, he can't single-handedly handle everything. So what happens, just like in a company? The guy at the top, he finds a group of the right people that will work under him. They will be charged with taking up, developing, and implementing the different pieces of all of that. And those people probably can't do it all themselves, so they, in turn, go get people that work underneath them to take it down one more level. That's called management. Christopher Ray either doesn't give a rip or he purposely has allowed to happen what he's being exposed now of allowing to happen, and he with impunity doesn't care what people that are in responsibility over all things in the FBI. That would be the United States Congress. He doesn't care, didn't even act like he has to answer anything. It's probably a combination of all of the above. I wonder if he's going to get away with it. That's a good question. And I'm going to stop right there. We're going to switch gears and go on to another conundrum. We haven't talked much of late about Ukraine and the war in Ukraine. We give you all of the gory details every few days. How many more people have been killed on the Russian side how many Ukrainian military members and private citizens have been blown up by Russians? It's a horrible situation. War is never good. Too many people pay a, pay a price, and the ancillary ripple waves that come out of the actual wars makes it even worse. But something that millions of Americans have watched escalate since this began a year and a half ago wondering why are we sending so much in the way of dollars and cents to Ukraine, but even more so, we're sending tens of millions, if not billions of dollars of ammunition. And our president actually said on a national stage last week that we've sent Ukraine so much ammunition that we're low on ammunition, which was a stupid thing for anybody, especially any president of the United States, to say, because our foreign foes 
They've got people that monitor every word that Joe Biden and every other person in his administration says. So they heard at the same time what we heard. So even Democrats are wondering what the heck is going on. On Friday's broadcast of CNN Situation Room, Representative Ro Khanna, he's a Democrat from California. I like him personally, but politically I don't have a lot of respect for him. On that show, Situation Room Friday, he said that it makes no sense that we spend billions of dollars on defense every year, but we manage to run out of the ammunition that we give to Ukraine after a year of war, and that this shows that there is a clear lack of accountability over where the money we spend in the defense budget ends up going. Connor said, well, the first thing we have to also understand is the spending. Let's be clear. We are being gouged by defense contractors in terms of what the taxpayers are being charged. Here's the question I have. We have almost a trillion dollar defense budget and we can't make enough artillery to give to Ukraine? We've had this war for a year and we've run out of money to have sufficient artillery in terms of steel? Of the top 15 companies, nine of them are in China. Not one of them is in the United States. Here's the question Rokana asked that I'm asking you. Where is this money going? The money that this trillion dollars that we're told it's going to take care of all of our military needs but we're out of ammunition? Where is this money going? We need accountability. We need to be building the industrial base and actually having things that are going to strengthen our national security. So where is the money going? I'm going to answer the question, or at least I'm going to answer the question by putting a question mark in your mind. an open letter that was signed by 46 foreign policy experts calling for more armed shipments to Ukraine and ammunition included, published in Politico. This is that letter. 46 foreign policy experts wrote this letter, signed off on it, and Politico printed it. The letter failed to mention the ties of nearly half of those 46 foreign policy experts, their personal ties to the defense industry, allegedly glossing over their personal conflicts of interest. Now, this is coming from the Washington-based Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. On June the 5th, Politico, it's not one of my favorite outlets. In fact, it's not even in my top 150. (laughs) On their website, they published that open letter entitled, Ukraine Needs a Roadmap to NATO Membership ASAP, calling for Western leaders at the NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania last, last week to commit to supplying Ukraine with weapons, fighter jets, tanks, and sufficient quantities to prevail on the battlefield. In the letter, these 46 experts argued that Western leaders should help facilitate a comprehensive transition of the weapon systems being used in the war against Russia up to NATO standards, their term, NATO 
standards. This is a quote from the letter. The focus should be on the transition to Western weapon systems, creation of a modern NATO-compatible air and missile defense system, creation of a medical rehab system for wounded soldiers, as well as a system for soldier reintegration into civilian life and a comprehensive deeming effort. I don't know what deeming effort means. So, although Politico did list the names of the 46 foreign policy experts and claimed to have outlined their affiliations, the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft, which argues for a less interventionist U.S. foreign policy, by the way, claimed that at least 21 of those signatories currently, today, have connections to the military-industrial complex that they just forgot to mention them Politico just left that out of the article. Go figure. Quincy Institute senior advisor, a guy named Eli Clifton, writing for Reasonable Statecraft, noted that support for increasing Western military aid to Ukraine is not a view exclusively held by those with direct or indirect links to the weapons industry, but signatories of the letter are noticeably embedded in the financial umbrella of institutions and businesses with direct financial ties to some of the world's largest weapons firms. The very first one of these signatories on the letter, Stephen Began, B-I-E-G-U-N, which the political website described only as, quote, a former U.S. Deputy Secretary of State. They failed to mention He is also currently serving as a senior VP of global public policy at Boeing, one of the largest weapons and military hardware producers on earth. Boeing's website describes Began, this guy, his role as being, quote, responsible for advising and executing on Boeing's global public policy matters in support of the company's priorities while optimizing relationships with key stakeholders in the U.S. and around the world. Oh, he's also a member of the company's executive council. Another to have their defense industry affiliations overlooked was retired General Wesley Clark, who led the President Bill Clinton-ordered NATO bombing campaign of Yugoslavia in the Kosovo War, dubbed Operation Allied Force. The article describes Clark as a U.S. Army 12th Supreme Allied Commander, Europe, senior fellow at the UCLA Berkeley Center, while failing to mention his role as a senior board and company advisor at Via Space, which stated that Clark was hired to, quote, support investment in and expansion of Via Space's new technologies to the highly attractive space launch and defense strategic and tactical missile landscape. The investigation from the think tank also said that numerous signatories have roles at the Atlantic Council think tank, which is funded in part by some of the top American arms manufacturers that include Boeing, General Dynamics, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and Raytheon. One such example noted by the publication was ex-George W. Bush diplomat Paula Dobriansky, 
who was merely described by Politico as former Undersecretary of State for Global Affairs, despite her now serving as the Vice Chair of the Atlantic Council's Scowcroft Center for Strategy and Security. The Council claimed that opinions expressed by Ambassador Dobryansky nor any of its other fellows or experts are influenced by the think tank, which claims to be politically neutral, but it's not. The Director of Strategic Communications at the Council, a guy named Richard Davison, went on to say the ambassador does not receive any direct income from the council. However, while many experts that work with the council, the Atlantic Council, or indeed other prominent think tanks in D.C., may not receive a check from the institution itself, they're often rewarded in other ways, such as with increased speaking fees on the D.C. circuit. Other organizations funded by military arms producers to have sponsored some of the signatories of the political letter included the George W. Bush Institute, the Hudson Institute, the McCain Institute, the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments, and the Center for a New American Security. Someone asked Politico when they were asked, hey, why did you fail to disclose all of these connections? A spokesperson for Politico said, quote, this is a public statement by 46 well-known public figures and foreign policy experts outlining their position on NATO membership for Ukraine. The signatures are listed by name and title so that readers can form their own conclusions based on the array of professional experiences each signatory brings to the discussion. It's a typical leftist response. 46 experts then weighing in on something very critical. We had 50, 51 I believe, so-called intelligence community experts that included several past CIA members and directors that said in that letter that they sent like the week before the final debate in the 2020 election about the Hunter Biden laptop What did they say? It's Russian disinformation. There's no factual basis to believe any of that. Anything you hear is true. We know factually we're the experts. Listen to us. The Russians did it. Russia, Russia, Russia. What do we always tell you here? If you ever got a question about why, follow the money. Follow the money. You're juvenile, mate. Everyone has one. The guy that's fun to be around, but he's dangerous to be around. You've got to keep him away from your things, like your tools, your gadgets, and your girlfriend. So before you get your juvenile mate around, get your lips around a Dare Ice Coffee. The real Arabica and Robusta Coffee Kick will tell you what to do. Hire a jumping castle. Hours of fun for kids of all ages. A dare iced coffee fix will fix it. <clears throat> Off to gang and showtime. Uh, do you know this guy? I'm not gonna cry, am I? Only if you don't believe in the power of friendship. Really? You guys are good. <laughs> movies, right when you want them. Watch unlimited movies instantly for only nine bucks a month from Netflix. That's so cute, it's stupid. Ladies, 
We ask your forgiveness. Please forgive our immaturity, our outbursts of tacky compliments. Forgive our browser history. Forgive our hormones taking control of us. Forgive us for thinking an open shirt is the ultimate weapon of appeal. Forgive us for opening our beers like primates. Forgive for taking a no as a yes. For insisting on playing a guitar that doesn't exist. And please, forgive us for never washing our hands. Ever! Schneider, the beer with the exact maturity of the man who's in the process. Uncertain about what you see and hear in mainstream media? Worried about getting the truth? No worries anymore. Get the truth, only the truth, at TNN, the Truth News Network, truthnewsnet.org. You know, something we don't talk a lot about around here is stuff that's going on in the entertainment world. Every once in a while, we'll, we'll talk about some movies. We'll talk in a moment about one that's out now that surprised a lot of people that's doing really well. But I was, I was floored when I heard what happened last week out in Hollywood, California regarding the entertainment industry when every part of it, I mean, actors, writers, producers, they all went on strike. And I think the stated purpose for going on strike was because they're afraid artificial intelligence, AI, is going to steal their jobs. I think the same fear, if you're going to fear that, you could apply it to every other industry in the United States. So I begin to ask the question, in this environment, when Americans have totally shifted their emphasis on entertainment, especially movie and television entertainment, some of the latest big-budget blockbuster movies have just stunk. Nobody wants to support them the woke crowd and the trans stuff that's going around and Disney and others concentrating on LGBTU plus stuff and trans stuff. Americans have just had enough of it. And so when these big blockbuster movies come out, we even hear about some Broadway shows. They're just getting dismal responses because most people are just tired of it. Give us plain old good entertainment. Don't try to shove your social, sexual ideas and philosophies down our throats. We can make our own decisions about stuff. We don't need you to go up there on stage and strut it out in front of us or on film and show us that part of your life. We just don't want to see it. And isn't it interesting of late, the good, wholesome stuff, the things with content, really good content, are doing really well. Barry Diller, who's an actor and a writer, you'd probably know who he is if you don't by the name, if you saw him. He said these strikes going on could lead to Hollywood's absolute, total destruction. Today, no, it was, this was yesterday, this was Sunday, on CBS, he said that the entertainment industry could collapse if the writers and actors' strikes are not resolved soon. 
He was talking to Margaret Brennan. Let me give you just a little piece of the conversation between the pair. Margaret said, the gears of America's entertainment industry ground to a near-complete halt last week when the union that represents actors joined writers on the picket line. And some of those news staff at CBS or some of those people that they left, they're on the picket line. SAG members, but they work under a different contract than do the actors and are not affected by the strike. But to understand who is impacted, Barry Diller comes on our show, former movie studio head. He's currently the chairman of IAC and Expedia. Brennan asked Diller this, you know, we were trying to gauge the economic impact of all this. And according to the Milken Institute, it could cause $4 billion, billion with a B, in economic damage. What do you think the impact will be and how long will it last? Diller, who's an insider and he's very knowledgeable, he said, well, the problem with this particular all strikes get settled. The issue for this one is when? Because you have almost a perfect storm here, which is you have had COVID, which sent people home to watch streaming and television and kill theaters. You've had the results of huge investments in streaming, which have produced all these losses for all these companies who are now kind of retrenching. So right now, this kind of perfect storm, it's okay if it gets settled in the next month. But I'll project what happens if it doesn't, and there doesn't seem to be enough trust and energy to get it settled soon. What will happen if, in fact, it doesn't get settled until Christmas or so? Then next year, there's not going to be many programs for anybody to watch. So you're going to see subscriptions get pulled, which is going to reduce the revenue of all these movie companies, television companies, the result of which is there will be no programs. And at just the time, strike is settled that you want to get back up, there won't be enough money. So this actually will have devastating effects if it's not settled soon. And the problem with settlement in this case is there's no trust between any of the parties. There are existential issues. Obviously, AI, artificial intelligence, which I think is just overhyped to death in terms of the worries that there is and writers are going to be replaced rather than assisted, which is what I think will happen. But there's no trust. You have the actors' union saying, how dare these 10 people who run these companies earn all this money and won't pay us? Well, if you look at it on the other side, the top 10 actors get paid more than the top 10 executives. I'm not saying either is right. Actually, everybody's probably overpaid on the top end. The one idea I had is to say as a good faith measure, both the executives and the most paid actors should take a 25% pay cut to try and narrow the difference between those who get highly paid and those who don't. The only other thing he would do, this is Diller talking, I would call for a September 1 deadline. There's a strike deadline. I think there should be a settlement deadline because unless it happens by the 1st of September, the actions, and you know, of course, who cares about Hollywood, who cares about it, but the truth is this is a huge business both domestically and for the world export. And if it is, and it sounds like I'm crying to the skies, but these conditions will potentially produce an absolute collapse of an entire industry. Now, 
I know Diller's an expert. I'm not an expert. I'm a movie buff. I love the movies. And yeah, during COVID, we were at home and we watched a lot of Netflix television series and we watched movies, many of which I couldn't even today tell you what they were about and which ones they were. We tried our best to not get those queued up to watch. But, you know, sometimes you just can't tell what it is. I did learn a lot there. There aren't a lot of really great movies that I haven't seen yet. And production obviously has just ramped back up post-COVID, but it looks like now it's going to ramp back down. But what's been interesting to me of late is I've seen some really, I don't want to say low budget, but much lower budget movies and television series that have come out that have been very, very successful. And one right now, I mean, it was supposed to be a dud. It was predicted it wouldn't do anything. Sound of Freedom is a movie I'm talking about. We've talked about it here several times. It was a $15 million movie, and it was released in about a third of the number of theaters as did the latest Raiders of the Lost Ark movie produced by Disney. And by the way, Disney was offered Sound of Freedom to produce, and they passed on it. And so it was funded and produced by a bunch of individuals, to just be honest with you, $15 million. Raiders' budget was $250 million. So in the first week of release on about a third of the number of screens, Raiders topped the money of Sound of Freedom, but Sound of Freedom came in with $50 million in cash on a $15 million budget. So it's the first week, it's in the plus of $35 million. Sound of Freedom this past week soars to $83 million. They added another $24.7 million in just one week. Never forget that the Disney grooming syndicate owned Sound of Freedom and then tried to make it go away. Did you know that? Disney grooming syndicate. Because Jim Caviezel, who's the star in the movie, doesn't age. It's hard to tell, but Sound of Freedom wrapped way back in 2018. And at the end of the movie, after it's over, he you get a message and say, wait like a minute. Jim Caviezel has a message for you. And he comes back and tells you, they, they met every kind of obstacle you could imagine to get that movie out. And it took five years to even get it in theaters. Five years. When Disney acquired 20th Century Fox in 2019, Disney acquired Sound of Freedom, a movie that is about to become one of the most profitable independent movies of all time. Obviously, a demonic company like Disney, and it is, a company dedicated to grooming kids by sexualizing children's content with homosexuality, transsexuals, drag queens, and transvestites, does not want anything to do with a movie that depicts the sex trafficking of children as a bad thing, which that's what Sound of Freedom is all about. Disney is determined to normalize sex with kids, not reinforce the idea that a child's innocence must be protected. 
So Disney shelved Sound of Freedom and they sat on it. It took five years for the producers of the movie to get it back. Well, because the arc of history bends towards justice, the fetishists at Disney are about to lose a couple of hundred million dollars on Indiana Jones and the dial of cucking Indiana Jones with a sexless co-star no one finds appealing. At the same time, Sound of Freedom has become a money printing machine. Everything after about $35 million is pure profit for Sound of Money. Uh, I mean, Sound of Freedom. <laughs> but it is Sound of Money. Already the people behind this blockbuster have split about $50 million with theaters. That means you can figure that's about $25 million clear and counting. I'm glad. I love to see it when the little guy goes in to pinch it and he knocks a home run to win a game. And it looks like, it just looks like, Sound of Freedom is going to be the blockbuster of the year. If you haven't seen it yet, I encourage you, go see the movie. I don't care what you know about human trafficking, child sex trafficking, sex trafficking of any kind. You don't know anything like you're going to learn from watching Sound of Freedom. It'll stir you. Two or three times during the movie, I boohooed like a baby just knowing. And by the way, it's based on a 100% true story. The people in it, the names and everything, and the incidents were absolutely 100% truthful. So I guess it's basically like a documentary, other than that the actors in it are not the people that actually lived through it in real life. Speaking of uh, some questionable things, some questionable and unethical and really bad stuff perpetrated by individuals, specifically one. Do you remember who Dr. Anthony Fauci is, or have you forgotten about him? <laughs> well, I know it probably won't come as a, too much of a surprise to you, but uh, last weekend, some new information came out. And some of that new information came out. It looks like Dr. Fauci got caught with his pants down, figuratively, thank God. But Dr. Fauci got exposed for telling some big ones. Newly unredacted emails from Dr. Anthony Fauci suggest that he was not sold on the natural COVID origin theory, despite what he was telling the public. Former State Department investigator claiming Fauci was part of a cover-up. Griff Jenkins joins us live with more live in the flesh. Our, we always get big smiles on our face when we see Griff here. How are <laughs> well, you doing, brother? That's because I drink Coors Light when the sun comes up. But exactly let me right. digress. Good morning, guys. Paging Dr. Fauci, the House Select Committee on COVID has some questions for you. Chief among them, did COVID come from a lab leak? Because it appears in this latest revelation, Fauci acknowledges in private that gain-of-function research was underway in that lab in Wuhan, China. That's according to this unredacted email 
12 from February of 2020. And credit here goes to Martha McCallum's producers on the story who dug into this. Now take a look at these two images of the same email. One totally redacted, produced from a previous FOIA request. The other from the committee revealing what Fauci wrote to his fellow scientists, saying, quote, that would be most unusual to have evolved naturally in the bats. And there was a suspicion that this mutation was intentionally inserted. Now, one source says this information was not classified, but instead hidden because it made Fauci look bad since he knew of the gain of function. And Dr. Sapphire, you can appreciate this. The source also says Fauci, who oversaw the biodefense program at NIH, should have been aware that the Wuhan lab had been determined by the State Department to have, quote, inadequate safety controls. Now, Dr. David Asher, who is part of the State Department's investigation into COVID's origins, says this was a cover-up. Watch. Now they're basically saying that, you know, they had that thesis all the way up to just before the publication, basically, of their paper. Um, and it, it was essentially rejected by, by Fauci and by uh, Nature Medicine itself, which is also complicit. The cover-up is so much more extensive, uh, and, and I can only imagine what's going to come out in the coming weeks as more of Fauci's internal communications are, are uncovered. And I think he's right. More may be coming, guys. The committee chaired by Dr. Brad Winstrup says this is far from over. Pete, Will, Nicole. Right. Thank, Thank you so you much, guys. Griff. You know, listening to some of this is, it's infuriating, borderline disgusting, in the sense that anyone who in 2020 even raised the question of the potential origin of this virus were deemed a charlatan. I was criticized across multiple media outlets saying that I was a conspiracy theorist, and it was just upsetting. And even in my book, Panic Attack, which I wrote about COVID, I have an entire chapter talking about why these mutations don't necessarily make sense happening in nature. And now you actually see Dr. Fauci agreed with me, yet I was heavily criticized. Mm -hmm. I'd like an apology. Well, that's because Dr. Nicole Sapphire, that's who that was, she is not a hardcore leftist Democrat that uh, signed off on anything and everything the good Dr. Fauci told us to do during COVID-19. After all, he told us, quote, I am the science. He actually said that. And what's worse, he obviously actually believed that. And millions of people, their lives have been changed. Many of those people aren't even alive anymore because they acted according to Mr. Science's directions. I wonder if there'll ever be any accountability for old Anthony other than him being exposed and him getting some mud on his face. Want to turn to a little bit of politics news? We haven't even talked about it. Think about it. That's so unusual on this show. Let's see, how long have we been on the air now? An hour and 35 minutes? And we really haven't talked about election politics, have we? Well, there was some big news over the weekend. Former President Trump, he, um, he kind of stole the show at a major conservative conference over the weekend, overwhelmingly voted, everybody there overwhelmingly voted for former President Donald Trump in a Republican presidential primary straw poll. So the Trafalgar Group did the poll. Attendees at this Turning Point Action Conference that was held in West Palm Beach, Florida, they chose Trump. Now, what do you think his number was at that get-together? What do you think? How high do you think it was? How about this? 
87.5% of the people there chose Trump. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, now remember they're in West Palm Beach, Florida, he only got 4.3%, and the rest got the rest split up. DeSantis actually came in third behind businessman Perry Johnson, who got 7.8% despite the conference happening in the governor's state. About 3,000 people were there that responded to the poll, half of the approximate 6,000 that were totaled there at this conference. Half of the attendees were between the ages of 18 and 21, while the other half were varied in ages. Now think about that. Young people, isn't this a positive thing for us that we're seeing there is a generation of young people, maybe they're behind the, uh, I'm a baby boomer, the two generations after that, maybe these 18 to 21-year-olds were a generation or two behind that one. I don't know. I can't keep up with the names of the generations. I can't. But obviously, there are some people that are alive today that really care about politics, that really want to get into the facts so they can use those facts to make some real good, credible, and accurate choices for themselves. Trump attended the event on just Saturday. He delivered a very lengthy speech, covered a number of different topics. Meanwhile, listen to this, DeSantis didn't even go. And this was in his home state. His campaign press secretary, Brian Griffin, said to the Washington Examiner, Governor DeSantis spent the day with Iowans, and spoke to a packed house at the Tennessee GOP Statesman dinner later that night. This was a day after he delivered the strongest interview at the Family Leadership Summit, which Donald Trump notably skipped. Ron DeSantis is campaigning to win. By the way, for attendees in West Palm Beach, their second preference, half of the respondents chose Vivek Ramaswamy, who also spoke at the conference and was swarmed by attendees afterwards. 21% named Trump as their second choice. 13.5% chose DeSantis. Turning Point founder CEO Charlie Kirk, he said this, the straw poll demonstrates that President Trump remains the single most dominant force among the conservative grassroots. All the attacks against him have seemingly made him even stronger and more popular among the conservative faithful. Kirk added that the the conference goers expressed to him disappointment that DeSantis didn't show up. Charlie said this, What's also clear is that Governor DeSantis' decision not to come to this event probably hurt him showing in this poll. There are a lot of people here who have a lot of respect for the governor and what he's done in Florida, But I was approached multiple times by attendees telling me they're really disappointed he didn't come. And that's evident in the poll results. Vivek showed up and gave a great speech, and he was the clear second-choice favorite among our people. Kirk called the event and the people that went. He called them the pulse of the grassroots. Two other Republican candidates spoke at the event, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson and Miami Mayor Francis Suarez. Former Vice President Mike Pence, Senator Tim Scott, former Ambassador to the UN Nikki Haley and DeSantis were all invited. 
As far as vice president, 30% of respondents said Carrie Lake. 24% said Representative Byron Donalds of Florida. And 22% said Ramaswamy. There was still some miserable support for DeSantis at this conference, according to a source that was part of the event. The source cited a large cardboard cutout of the governor's face outside the main hall with some supporters posting positive messages and thoughts. So this poll from Trafalgar found that more than 95% of respondents are against U.S. involvement in the Ukraine war. Also, 95% that the southern border was the most important issue facing us, and a majority saying they were excited about the RNC's primary debate coming up in August. Notably, 66% said they don't trust the RNC to get voters to the polls in 24, according to the report, and a huge 77% majority said they do not plan to donate to the Republican National Committee. Nearly 90% favored early voting and vote banking, which is interesting to me. And then what about Ron DeSantis? Did you hear this over the weekend? There's a big campaign shakeup in his campaign. And at the same time, the top gov, Ron DeSantis, he hinted at a possible running mate should he get the nomination. Less than two months on the campaign trail, just two months, approximately a dozen of DeSantis staffers have been fired. More are expected to be let go in this coming week or next week. Politico first reported that two senior advisors on the governor's staff, David Abrams and Tucker Obenshane, departed, quote, to help an outside political no-profit group that will be bolstering the governor. According to an NBC News familiar source, the most recent group to be shown the door as part of ongoing cost-cutting measures were mid-level staffers from various departments. Campaign sources said that some of the people on the inside believe too many staffers were hired too early, and despite bringing in about $20 million during its first six weeks, it was becoming clear their cost needed to be brought down. Genera Peck led DeSantis' 2022 midterm re-election bid, and as his current campaign manager, some are blaming her for the shakeup. One donor told the outlet she should be in the hot seat. They never should have brought so many people on. The burn rate was way too high, said one Republican source. People warned the campaign manager, but she wanted to hear none of it. DeSantis' stock is not rising, that donor said. 20% is not what people signed up for. But this same donor noted DeSantis has a history of changing out his staff, leaving him with a core team that has spent no time working together. Each of the three times he ran for Congress, he employed three different campaign teams. And when he first ran for governor in 2018, he notably had a huge campaign shakeup. That's according to NBC News. According to the governor's campaign spokesman, Andrew Romeo, DeSantis is building a movement. Americans are rallying behind Ron DeSantis and has planned to reverse Joe Biden's failures and restore sanity to our nation. And his momentum will only continue as voters see more of him in person, 
especially in Iowa. Defeating Joe Biden and the $72 million behind him will require a nimble and candidate-driven campaign. We're building a movement to go the distance. So what did the campaign finance reports say? They were filed on Saturday with the FEC. It shows that the DeSantis campaign employed 92 people for at least some part of the time during its first fundraising period. It is by far the most of any Republican presidential candidate, and it has left his campaign with huge payroll expenses, and the new filings show fewer resources than were first thought. So here's his money situation. He has $12 million bucks in the bank. But of that $12 million, $3 million can be used only during the general election. About $14 million of a second quarter haul came from donors who gave the maximum legal amount. In other words, roughly two-thirds of his early donors will not be able to give directly to his campaign for the duration of this race. Now that's going to hurt him. I don't care what anybody says. Now, they can go through packs and super packs, and many of them probably will, but a bunch of them are going to be continuing, as we are, to watch his numbers and his support. And I promise you, if he doesn't see some very positive movement in his support among Republicans pretty quickly, the big donors, they're going elsewhere. They don't want to spend money with people that aren't going to win. Nobody wants to be a part of a losing situation like that. And there's somebody else out there that's struggling. Former Vice President Mike Pence's campaign, it's beset by woes. He's failed to generate enthusiasm. It's resulted in dismal fundraising numbers that could put him in jeopardy of not even making the cut for the first debate next month. Wow. Wow. And at one point, everybody thought he was a shoe-in. According to media reports, Pence had only managed to raise a measly $1.2 million, $1.2 million for his campaign, which launched in early June. A major disappointment considering his national name recognition. That raises serious questions about his viability in a crowded field of contenders in which his ex-boss, Donald Trump, has a massive lead and is cruising toward the party's nomination And obviously, Trump has a full head of steam, although anything can still happen with an entire year until the Republican National Convention next summer. Pence has also reportedly amassed another $2.6 million raised by Committed to America. That's a super PAC supporting his presidential bid. That puts his total at $3.8 million total. And even worse for the former Veep is that he's not met the donor threshold that would qualify him for the initial televised debate set to take place in Milwaukee in August. Mr. Pence's campaign is fighting to qualify for the first Republican presidential debate next month, and aides said he had not yet received donations from 40,000 donors, the threshold required to make the debate stage. That's according to the New York Times. It's very interesting stuff. Very interesting stuff. Wow, we are running out of time. This Monday, time is flying. We only have about 12 minutes left. We're going to take our final break of the show. But uh, let me tell you a couple of things that are coming up tomorrow. Of course, every Tuesday, 
In our second hour, Steve Baker joins us. And there's a lot of news up in the air about Steve personally. And I'm going to make him tell you what it is. I'm going to try to. I'm going to shame him into it. But he'll be here in our second hour tomorrow. Make sure you're back. From Krakow to Grand Island, Milan to Hanoi, this is TNN, the Truth News Network. We got you something. It's a deep, deep dish pepperoni and bacon pizza, and we gift wrapped it with over three and a half feet of bacon. You've been working so hard. We love you. Get a Little Caesars large bacon wrapped deep, deep dish pizza for just 12 bucks. Try our convenient app and pizza portal pickup. Pizza, pizza. 35 years after the original movie, Fox is bringing you back to where it all began. Nobody puts baby in the corner. This is the real Dirty Dance. Eight celebrities compete to become the real Baby and Johnny. Where my Johnny is? Some will rise. Some will fall. All will have the time of their life. The Real Dirty Dancing four-week event starts Tuesday at 9 on Fox 5. Yo, some people think it don't make sense that I'm a horse whisperer. Fancy prance, yo! But you know what else don't make sense? Bye. I mean, it's good for you, but still somehow tastes amazing. Sideways fancy prance, you heard? Yeah. Clippity-clop, clippity-clop. Yo, I just whispered all of y'all. Too easy. Bye. Five calories, antioxidants, and tastes amazing? None of this makes sense. ever forget that song that was the first rap song came in you remember that run dmc walk this way aerosmith man that seems like it was a lifetime ago and boy how the music world has changed since then hasn't it i don't want to get away without talking about the house very quietly i don't think of it as even a big deal but on friday they passed they passed a defense spending bill And it's full of some goodies. Now, I don't know if it's going to survive over on the Senate side, but I want you to hear the details that are in it and what was taken out. On the heels of the nation's toughest abortion law just approved in Iowa, abortion is center stage for many Republicans. And today, GOP lawmakers are taking aim at the Defense Department abortion policies while celebrating that Iowa law. Willie James Inman has more details from Capitol Hill. Republicans successfully added an amendment banning the Pentagon from covering travel expenses for service members seeking abortions to a bill funding the military. Doesn't matter what position you stand when it comes to abortion, when the one defining part that most all Americans believed You can support it or you can oppose it, but don't use tax dollars on it. Then Friday, the GOP-controlled House passed the Defense Authorization Act, mostly along party lines. The bill typically wins large bipartisan support. The far right hijacked this, hijacked our national security, and this makes our country less secure, less safe, and it's an insult to 
all of our women in uniform, so I'm a no. On the other side of Capitol Hill, Senator Tommy Tuberville has single-handedly blocked the Senate confirmation of more than 250 senior military officers because of Pentagon abortion policies. President Biden slammed Tuberville Thursday while traveling in Europe. I'd be willing to talk to him if I thought there was any possibility of changing this ridiculous position he has. He's jeopardizing U.S. security. Abortion is also a key focus today for the candidates hoping to win the GOP's presidential nomination. A majority of the candidates are attending an evangelical forum in Iowa today. Isn't it good to be in a nation where you are free to praise the Lord? Hallelujah. Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds is using the event to sign a new bill into law, banning abortions after six weeks in most cases. Willie James Inman, CBS News, Capitol Hill. Does any of that surprise you? It does to me. I really thought, based upon some of the things we've seen Republicans do, they were going to lay down. I really didn't think they would hold to their commitments Um but they did, <laughs> at least so far. Will they stick to it? Of course, what happens, it'll go over to the Senate. The Senate will take it up, and they'll make a bunch of changes, and they'll then vote on it. If they get something put together, it'll go back to the House, and they'll have to do what's called reconciliation, which is where leaders from both sides, they come and meet together and try to find some consensus, which is something that we have very, very little of, very little of in this Congress. You know that. I mean, it's crazy how much they fight and sometimes how much they fight over nothing. There's something else that's in play that many thought it wasn't. On the docket for lawmakers is whether or not to reauthorize that very controversial Section 702 of FISA beyond this year. Representative Barry Moore, Republican from Alabama, who's a member of the House Judiciary Committee, he says that Congress may not do so. They may not renew it given the alleged abuses and the stonewalling by the FBI and its director for Christopher Wray. You just heard part of his testimony from Thursday, I believe, last week when Congressman Mike Johnson really nailed him with specifics and Christopher Ray either didn't know the answers or he was lying in some of the answers he gave. So what is Section 702 of the FISA? Here's what it does. It authorizes targeted intelligence collection of specific types of foreign intelligence information. But it's very targeted. That includes information concerning international terrorism or the acquisition of weapons of mass destruction. Now, that's straight from the FBI website. During an interview with Mobile Alabama Radio FM Talk Show 106.5, Moore, also a member of the House Freedom Caucus, suggested the FBI's ability to use Section 702 is in peril. That's why we as members of the Judiciary Committee, we're looking at FISA reauthorization where they are spying. The Patriot Act was well-intended years ago, but the FBI and government agencies have used that to spy on American citizens. So we're at a crossroads. We may not reauthorize 702. I think we have to limit the FBI's power to collect data on American citizens and civil liberties issues. If I had a vote, I'll just be totally very plain right now. 
I think, I think they don't need to renew it. I think they need to have every time they want to check on us, look into us, monitor us, they need to go to the courts and provide enough evidence to justify a warrant to do that. Other than that, shut it down. That's just Dan talk. Hey guys, thanks for joining us today. You have a great Monday. We'll be back tomorrow morning at 9 a.m.